just like the night They play tricks when you're trying to be so quiet Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. I'm joined on this episode by Wesleyan University President Michael Roth. Wesleyan is an elite private liberal arts university in Connecticut, and Dr. Roth has been its president for the past 16 years. Trained as a historian, he frequently publishes essays, book reviews, and commentaries in national newspapers and has published seven books to date, the most recent of which, Safe Enough Spaces, A Pragmatist Approach to Inclusion, Free Speech, and Political Correctness on College Campuses, seemed especially prescient in this current political landscape where politicians on the right continue to assault not just higher education, but K-12 through as well. I came across the book last year and found it compelling, and then I read an opinion piece he wrote recently for the New York Times titled, Anxiety About Wokeness is Intellectual Weakness, and that convinced me I needed to hear his thoughts on education and the use of education as a battleground for our culture wars. And these visions of Johanna that conquer my mind So I'll, I'll uh, preface this question as such. I wanted to talk to you in part because I think by looking at education right now in America, it serves as almost a cross-section of a host of other issues in society. Uh, good or bad, a lot of things that Americans feel strongly about are manifesting in education and the changes to it, really from K through through college. So I'd like to talk about maybe just a couple patterns in education, which can probably then be extrapolated out to society more generally, I'm thinking. So as you likely know, uh, our governor here in Florida has made what he calls education reform a flagship uh, of his political platform. And this includes a number of different things, but some that are relevant here. Um, the rejection of most efforts, at least, towards diversity, equity, inclusion, banning discussions on critical race theory, although they were never really taught. And I don't know if he exactly knows what that actually means. A lot of people, I think, don't understand the term. Uh, Gender sexuality issues, a lot of book banning. Um, Students are able to file suit for if they feel they're being indoctrinated, they can bring these up. The AP African-American history class, I don't know if you saw that, that was dropped. And then last week with the slavery, having to teach that there were some benefits potentially for for (laughs) slaves. Um, And, you know, as he he famously said, this is where woke goes to die, right? So, uh, but we're just one of many states, I think, moving in this direction. So um, he's touching on something that resonates with certain folks. And so I wanted to know where you think this move comes from, this kind of cultural move in uh, education. And I ask you this in part due to the writing, some of the writing you've done on on anti-wokeness. Well, thank you. I, I, I think that generally speaking, education and especially higher education is a screen onto which the society projects its conflicts, its fantasies, its its anxieties. And that happens on any number of issues from race and social mobility to access to uh, good jobs, free speech. A lot of the issues that people get concerned about of through colleges and universities uh, are actually deeper concerns about community uh, and, and that they would have in their towns and cities. In the case of Governor DeSantis, though, I think it's much more cynical than that. I, I, I'm no expert on, on Florida politics, but it, it does seem to me that Governor DeSantis, uh, who of course has about as an elite in education as one could have, right. um, recognize that by attacking elite education, uh, he would earn points with 
a certain group of people who have until now been very closely aligned with Donald Trump. Uh, and, and Trump too saw this. I mean, he, 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 he doesn't really care too much or think too much about colleges and universities, but he saw that by attacking them, attacking professors, attacking elites, you can stoke resentment. Um, and in stoking resentment, you can play to the fears that people have about losing status. And I think that in, in Governor DeSantis's case, it's, it's, uh, it's extraordinarily egregious because you know, as a conservative, he should want to pr- be promoting uh, a limited government and and not government intrusiveness, and to um, come into towns and cities in Florida and in the university system in Florida to tell professionals what to teach and how to teach it from the governor's mansion, or to bring in uh, right wing extremists from around the country who have sometimes little in the way of academic credentials mm-hmm. to uh, dictate to professors what and how they should teach or, or to go into communities and, and, and empower the most narrow-minded fanatics to ban books in public libraries. These are all, all anti-conservative but typical proto-fascist moves to try to stir up resentment on behalf of uh, the power of the government. And you can see this in, in the governor DeSantis' case because his other favorite target, of course, is are trans people. And this is sure. all over the country. So you find a, a small group of people with little power, people who are very vulnerable, but people uh, who seem to create anxieties in others about their own gender, sexuality, identity. And so you stir up fear and anger about these people with, and then have to worry about the consequences for them because it's a small group. Right, right, and and uh, it's 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 painful to watch the, the, the saving grace in Florida these days. <laughs> this is a small one, is that people were worried about DeSantis as being a competent version of Trump. That Trump didn't get a lot done because he's he's so lazy <laughs> and he works very little and he's incompetent. Uh, people thought, well, DeSantis is scary because he's actually smart. Yep. Um, and he and and his cynicism could be empowered by intelligence and discipline. Uh, but what we see instead is that he he's a pretty inept national politician. You know, it's early days, mm-hmm. but it it he, it seems like the, the enthusiasm about the chances of outflanking uh, Trump ha- has waned considerably. And so, what works in attacking, let's say, New College in Florida is actually not going to play that well in Iowa or New Hampshire or certainly not in the in the larger states. Yeah, that's kind of the the idea too. I had like oh he's a younger, more handsome, more intelligent version of Trump. Like we're in trouble. But I just did read something the other day that he's kind of trying to reboot his campaign because he has really had some missteps and yeah, he just fired a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. He just fired a bunch of people and uh you know that the, the line that these guys are vicious. These politicians, they know how to do it. The line is, you know, if he if he would fly in Delta or American, he would have saved twenty jobs or something. Because <laughs> his wife flies private planes, apparently. Right. So, I mean, I think he's just. It, it's interesting because the, the Republican field uh, seems, and I just I'm no expert on this stuff. I'm just as you know, another citizen reading the newspaper. Sure. But the Republican field is, is very, obviously very afraid to criticize Trump. Despite his many mistakes, they're not afraid of DeSantis. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Maybe in Florida, other politicians are, but they're just like going after him. And I think that, I will say again, it's early days, things can change. But the consequence for, for faculty, for school teachers, for trans people, Absolutely. and for other minority voters in Florida, th- those are real consequences. And, and uh, it's shameful what he's been able to accomplish so far. Yeah, agreed. Thank you. Yeah, the trans, I have a lot of interest in that issue as well. I've talked to a couple people about that and particularly in sports and yeah. you're right. I think it's just kind of a phantom, you know, way to, to go after something in Utah a year or two ago, their legislature passed a anti-trans women's sports bill, but their ve- governor vetoed it, Republican governor vetoed it. But at the time there was 80, like 85,000 high school students playing sports in Utah, four were trans and three were trans men <laughs> didn't even apply to them. The law only applied to it. So one person and they're getting a law passed to, yeah. you know, one. So it just shows it's really not based in any kind of actual reality, but just stoking, I guess, stoking those fears. Yeah. So right. uh, you've written, you've written today, quote, today, many are asking whether schools are truly helping students think of themselves or only think for themselves or only indoctrinating them into the latest campus orthodoxies. So I wanted to talk about that for a minute. It probably dovetails a little bit with what we, you were just saying. So I kind of wanted to know what you meant by these the campus orthodoxies. And it reminded me of the discussion that was going around a number of the higher ed bills here in Florida. And one of them in 2022, the HB, HB 233 purports to increase intellectual diversity and competing ideas uh, on college campuses. And their annual assessments now of intellectual freedom and viewpoint diversity. The Florida Senate president, um, speaking with you know confidence behind his 25-year-old AA degree, said there appear to be socialism factories in the state's university system. And DeSantis has called universities intellectually repressive. So um, I know universities have kind of always been targets uh, in certain ways. But what do you do? You see, is this an, an up? an upswing in that kind of fear of indoctrination or is this just been a consistent theme? I think it, it waxes and wanes in the late sixties. Um, there were lots of complaints about universities as hotbeds of radicalism and, and, and by, you know, again, in the, in the nineties, when the words political correctness became, you know, so uh, powerful uh, from, from the right, uh, this this notion of group thing that people were just you know protesting things because that was what you did uh, uh, and you know there that there were tenured radicals to use Roger Kimball's uh, the phrase from the title of his book from I think then in nineties where where they they there's this notion that the the lefties from the uh, universities in the sixties became professors and then they they um, indoctrinate students. Uh, by uh, giving them a version of history and literature that is very different from the ones of previous generations and that students swallow whole cloth because they want to get good grades. And I, I think there's some truth in this, actually, that that colleges and universities of a certain kind, especially the kind I'm in, like a, a you know highly selective liberal arts-oriented university in New England, that the faculty is is pretty homogeneous politically. You know, I, I joked that at Wesleyan, uh, political diversity means, you know, that the Trotskyites give, have a seat at the table. <laughs> and and that that's, you know, uh, that I think is a disservice to the students. And I think that part of the reason is the kinds of folks who go into academia and 
Uh, and, you know, how many people are willing to spend eight or nine years in graduate school and with a starting salary of under $100,000, uh, if you get a tenure track job, that it, it's, it's not everybody who will do that. Uh, but I, I, and, and I think there's the old saw that, you know, if you're, if you're not, if you're a socialist, it, if you're not a socialist at 25 or 20, you have no heart. If you're still a socialist at 35, you have no brains. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that there is something to that, that the young people tend to be more progressive. And so there's a combination of factors. I, and I think this has been exploited by politicians these days who see something real, which is a kind of intolerance from the left and uh, and they use that uh, in the same way that the McCarthyites used anti-communism. That is that they, they use it as a boogeyman to, to stoke fears about the corruption of the youth, uh, of, of indoctrination of students. Now, McCarthyism was a horrible thing that destroyed lives of, of, of people all over the country. Right. And, and communism was a horrible thing that murdered millions of people. <laughs> and so, so there's something there. I, I talked with my, my, faculty pretty often about the need for more intellectual diversity you know what this this point was brought home for me i'd written a book about these issues called safe enough spaces but this issue was brought home to me when i was talking about that book when it first came out and a guidance counselor from high school said to me that it would be professional malpractice on his part if he allowed a student in talking about her civic engagement practices to help her get into school if she, if he allowed her to talk about her work defending the unborn, hmm. interesting. That if she did that, she's not going to get into Wesleyan or Amherst or Brown or you know, whatever. You know these fancy uh, uh, schools with, that are selective. And I was, I have to say, even though I've been in this business a long time, <laughs> this kind of work a long time, I was really surprised. But he said, "Of course, we all know you can't talk about that. You can't talk about your religion. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get in." Mm-hmm. And and I think that's shameful on our part. Mm-hmm. And so I've you know talked to my faculty about ways in which we uh, faculty members who are hiring people sound a lot like the old farts that were hiring people in the seventies. You know, when we talked to uh, senior faculty in the seventies, why don't you hire more women? Why don't you hire uh, more uh, blacks? Their response is, we'd love to, but we only hire the best. Mm-hmm. And I talked to my colleagues, like, why are we always hiring people who agree with you more or less politically? They said, oh, we would love to have more diver- intellectual diversity, political diversity, but we only hire the best. And so I asked them to think about, is your notion of the best someone who looks like you, mm-hmm. thinks like you, acts like you? And it probably is yes, the answer. So what do you do about that? What do you do about that kind of bias? I have faith, and here's where I part ways with the right-wingers you talked about, I have faith that my colleagues have a professional ethos, that they don't want to be biased. They actually, when they become aware of the bias, hmm, try to correct for it. Right. Um, it doesn't mean they're going to just hire you know, somebody because she's a, a, a religious person or because she's a, a conservative but that they realize I may hire this person because he makes me feel smart because he agrees with me. <laughs> and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. I think it's a problem. Not all my colleagues agree. And I just want them to think about, well, gee, maybe that's 
not the best way to go about uh, research and teaching. And I actually think as professors, they, they will, they do think about it. And as teachers, they don't teach that way, but they actually do teach a variety of perspectives. Yeah. yeah. Although I, I, you know, I would be very suspicious of a, if a school had all white faculty and they said, well, yes, but we teach black perspectives. We just can't find a black person. I would be very suspicious of them. And I am suspicious of people who say we teach conservative points of view, although we don't have any conservatives. Right, right. It seems the I don't know, maybe it's just because we're different, uh, different schools and types of schools. But because I, I agree with you, I haven't met many professors who I who get on soapboxes and fail students if they don't agree, you know, that kind of thing. But the courses themselves aren't particularly neutral anything in the business college economics marketing industrial psychology you know transportation logistics they're all kind of operating under an assumption of a capitalist narrative that is indoctrination in, in a way as well it's just it's not viewed because it does it's just so common and normal i think that the, the courses aren't operating in like a completely sub objective manner so maybe it's the the faculty that are drawn to a school like yours versus say a big, you know, state, you know, open enrollment school or something like that. They're yeah. Right. Well, it's certainly the case that the, the, the disciplines that are more involved in training people for jobs are training people so they can fit into the system as it is. Right. Um, and how to make it work for them. That's different from sociology. Uh, I would even at a big university or English or, uh, philosophy. Although I do think that, you know, there's, there's a heck of a lot of uh, investment in the status quo. And even in places like, you know, mine, especially mm -hmm. in those fields that are not, how should I put it? They're, they're not, uh, they don't take it upon themselves to, to offer a critique of society. So my, the biology department may not be actually conservative or liberal. Right. I don't, I don't, I, I have no idea actually, I, mm -hmm. but. But I do know that if you went into the evolutionary biology course and you said you wanted to talk about creationism, they wouldn't let you. Right. And I don't think they should. Right. right. Actually, I think they, they should say that that's not what we do in evolutionary biology. Different course. Uh, yeah. In the religion department, I assume they would, they yeah. would, you know, you could talk about it. So, and I, I, I think that, um, being aware of the potential biases that come from orthodoxies that are, anti-status quo, but still orthodoxies. I think that's a good thing. And, um, and that puts me sometimes at odds with my, my uh, progressive colleagues, uh, who, who think that I, I overstate the need for intellectual diversity. Okay. Thank you. I forgot you were a Freud scholar, the narcissism of minor differences. You pulled that one out. I haven't heard that, I haven't heard that in a long time. Okay. From your book, uh, you just mentioned safe enough spaces. You, you say the privatization of the uni state university and the rise for-profit schools promising quick training for the newest jobs have together had unhappy consequences. Confidence depends on the public recognizing that universities contribute to the public good while also empowering individual students to lead lives of purpose. And it reminded me when I read that of a quote that's almost like 10 years old now in the, uh, the New York Times, author unknown. University trustees, often politically connected business executives, have increasingly embraced the view that fundamental change is needed to turn universities into engines of economic development for their states and reduce their roles as centers of scholarship. Uh, are these related factors, do you think, economics is is undermining some of the confidence? A a absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think that the the push to make colleges and universities 
handmaidens of industry <laughs> is it's, it's a long-standing thing in the United States. I mean, I think in in near the the passage you quote there, I think I quote Dewey who said something about this, you know, long ago. And I I, I think that on the one hand, it's totally reasonable to to say that you want your students when they graduate from college to be able to be to get a good job, whatever however they define good job. I mean, I I think that it would be foolhardy for professors to say they don't care they don't care about that because I mean that's really most of their students almost all their students have to work have mm-hmm. to have jobs. Uh, on the other hand, it, it seems to me a, a waste of time and money to to make it just about getting that first job, which as I always remind my the parents of students who are listening is the should be the worst job they ever get. Yeah, and so um, you you want to prepare them for purpose and meaningful work that's going to uh, be for a lifetime. But I do think, you know, I wrote this book called Beyond the University, which argues that the point of what you learn in college is not so that what you produce on college is what you do after you leave. It's what you do beyond the university. And so you have to be able to contribute. And so, uh, and that, that takes very different forms, you know, and, and I, the anxiety in our culture, you know, winner take all economy is really great. That is, you know, people think, oh, if I don't make it, I really am, I really am a loser, not just that I won't make it big. I, yeah. So when I, when I was thinking about going to graduate school long ago in 1978, I know I talked to my father who was a furrier and didn't go to college. And I said, I was thinking about going to graduate school and all my teachers said, you'll never get a job. You, you will never. He said, that's what you, the only way you should do this is you go in there with the ethos. I, you will never get a job. Wow. There were no jobs. And if you can go, someone will pay for you to go get a fellowship or something. Great, get an education, but you won't get a job. So I said to my dad, because I got a job like a, you know, an entry level job in a hospital as a researcher or something. And I said, I don't know. I, I think I should try. And, and I'm, but I'm not. I'm, you know, what if I don't get the job? He said to me, Well, you know, your uncle drives a cab. He can fix you up. <laughs> I mean, that was his answer. Yeah, there you go. And make a spot and, for you. There's a spot, you know, you're not going to starve. I washed dishes in college. I ran a little kitchen for after that. I learned to wash the dishes. <laughs> I earned enough money, you know, to get by. So, you know, you do that. He said, if you don't try, you'll never, you'll always wonder whether you should try. Yeah. yeah now yeah. that, that I, I, you know, my father died in Florida, actually, you know, but now probably 20, almost 20 years ago. Yeah, about 20 years ago. Um, and I talked to him about this at the end of his life, how important this conversation was for me. And he said, oh, I would never say that. Oh, he, was, you know, he was a tough guy. <laughs> but my point is today, parents are less likely to say that because you're not going to be able to make ends meet driving. Just, just, just being an Uber driver, you're not going to be able to feed your family. Right. My father, uh, you know, was able to feed his family. And, 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 uh, you know, my, my, my mother sold cold clothes in our basement. Surreptitiously. Well, I think the statute of limitations has passed, but um, (laughs) um, you know, just to get a few extra bucks in the house. So they all thought you could figure it out, you know. And today, there's this notion that if you don't make, you know, a lot of money, you're not, you're going to be really poor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that this puts pressure on. My point of all these stories is it puts pressure on us as teachers to be attentive to the needs of students to have a meaningful chance at productive work when they graduate. 
and and uh, and that does not mean becoming a professor because there, right. there are so right. few good jobs in our world now. Right, right, right. But doing something else for yeah. mo- almost for almost everyone. Uh, I think you you wrote something similar to that. Just one of your recent pieces, you quoted Nietzsche. Uh, your educators cannot go beyond being your liberators. You know, it's a great yeah, quote. Like, yeah, it. you can only only get them ready, you know, but they have to do the, the heavy that's lifting. Exact, yeah. yeah, that's that's in this new book, The Student, that's coming out. And uh, I think I, I pilfered it from it's coming out in, in, in early September. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Almost done. You OK on time? Yeah, I'm all right. OK, thank you. Um, I wanted to talk about this. This idea of polarization. So, again, one of your quotes going after wokeness as scapegoats is politically useful. They inspire solidarity by providing an object for hostility or derision, but educators should know better, blah, blah, blah. Given the extraordinary polarization in the country today, these exchanges are more important than ever. And so I've actually talked to a number of people about this in different fields because I'm really mm-hmm. I'm really, really curious and kind of passionate about this notion of, of polarization. And in fact, this Thursday, two days from now, I'm talking to a woman named Jennifer McCoy who wrote something with the uh, Carnegie Institute about uh, – she studies – polarization in different countries around the world. And the U.S. really does kind of stand out in how long it's been and how divisive it is. And she cites a number of very interesting things. So I look forward to that conversation. But um, I'm always kind of torn. Is this really this polarization new? Hmm. We've had difficulty in the civil rights movement, the civil war. Like, you know, we've had these periods of, is this a new period? Um, I didn't start paying attention to politics until probably the early 90s. And uh, to me, it seems crazy time right now. Uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know if that's really just the ebb and flow of of how things yeah. work and how it affects, you know, other parts of society. It's a great question. Um, you know, uh, I think it's Thomas Edsel had a piece in the New York Times last week about people that we really do hate each other. That was the <laughs> title, I think. You know, that, that it's not just polarization; it's just kind of, uh, and it's it's no accident. You know, it's stirred up by the politicians. They really disdain and contempt or, or passionate uh, uh, dislike of, of the other side stoked by the, the media tools we have available to us. But, you know, today, I think it was today I read this, uh, is it Jamal Bowie's had a piece about how partisanship has been part of this country. You know, and go back, he quoted Jefferson, you know, when he became president, he said, Oh, now I don't, I want it to be bipartisan. But before he was president, he was like, <laughs> these, these assholes on the other yeah. side. Yeah. <laughs> good writer, so it, there is a long history of it. Yeah. Um, and, but there's a the potential for violence now is is so clear and so scary, and I think that's where this polarization combined with the potential for violence and the tools for violence because of the lack of uh, gun control, and that is really frightening. I think as professors, our job is to show people how to disagree with each other attentively. Mm-hmm. Sometimes passionately. I mean, I had an exchange with a trustee today who said, uh, you know, I my announced my letter to the community after the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action was too partisan. Okay. And uh yeah, and I, I we agreed to disagree because I and you know, I I I wasn't nasty, I don't think, but I was clear in my disdain for the, the reasoning of in the decision. Mm-hmm. Um and and uh, that there's a balance there, right? Um, I, I am very interested in how uh, on our campuses, religious students, despite their differences, can actually often talk together. That they, you know, you, the, the, a, a, a religious uh, Protestant and a religious Jew, and sometimes a religious Muslim and a religious a Jew can 
can actually find common ground in discussions, even though they are passionately committed to different uh, ultimate worldviews. And I take that as a, a heartening thing that yeah. we can actually find a way to talk to each other. You can't talk to everybody. If somebody wants to kill you or humiliate you or destroy you, I don't think you should talk to them, actually. I think you should figure out how to protect yourself. But if people just passionately disagree with you and are sarcastic or, you know, or, you know that's okay. You know, I think you have to fig- figuring out how to talk with them mm-hmm. with, and, and how to stage disagreements so people can learn how to disagree productively, not just for the heck of being polite, right? but, but because you might find out that yeah, you're wrong. That's <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, it's better to find out. So I am very interested in taking the polarization that which, which we know about and staging conversations in classrooms to overcome that. In my case, I'm a historian. I don't usually do it by, let's say, let, let's, I don't say let's talk about gun control, but I may talk about rights versus obligations in some other culture or other time period. We're over eventually they say, Oh yeah, that's also the same as this conversation we have today, but we, we get at it like, you know, as more circuitously or abstractly sometimes. But ultimately I want people to see that someone else may have a better idea than they have. And it's worth listening to other people. All right. Dr. Roth, thank you. I have one last question and we're going to solve the world's problems here. This is the million dollar question, right? So based on that, just kind of, how do we get there? You know, what is that? What is the the path? And when I was reading about you in Wikipedia, it says you described your scholarly research interests as centered on how people make sense of the past. And if that's true, like what lessons can we take going forward to effectuate these changes? I, I think minimizing uh, or mit- mitigating harm is really important in these situations. You know, the, right now the, the uh, intensity of casual violence in this country is, 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 is really concerning and, and uh, upsetting and uh, doing what we can to, to mitigate the potential for violence is really important. Mm-hmm. Protecting people who are most vulnerable to violence. We start, we talked before about trans people, they would be high on the list. And in a t- period when protections for minoritized communities are being uh, eroded by the, by the right wing in uh, the Supreme Court and other entities in this country, figuring out how to protect vulnerable people. Uh, I think is really important. And as we do that, be open to suggestions from people who have very uh, other worldviews than our own. I mean, I, I, I teach a a course where uh, we start reading things from the ancient world and we wind up, you know, with critical race theory or something. And I I think the the, the contemporary things are pretty easy for students to understand and get into and get have arguments about. But I really want them to think about alternative ways of, th- of of understanding the world. Because once you realize that there are actually alternative ways of understanding the world that make a lot of sense, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. different from my own, you're much less likely to kind of just attack the person who's different from you because you you know there's a chance they are right. And there's a, or there's a chance that there's more than one way to look at this thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that last piece is so essential to a democracy. There's more than one way to look at this thing. And and right now, a simple message would be one, I think, that would be 
that there's more than a way to look at, at this thing and we should find new ways of looking at the problems that face us that uh, so, so that we can make progress on them. I'll give you one example. Uh, you know that the, this the homelessness uh, is, is is thought by many to be an almost intractable prob- intractable problem, and then you look at some of the work done in Houston, right, uh, where it was a real coalition of business leaders, progressives, government officials. They, they made some significant progress. My f- people I talked to in Houston say, yeah, maybe over the progress may be overstated, but still. Um, there are lessons there that now they're trying to use in Los Angeles. And, and, and these are really hard problems. Yeah. Right. Really hard. I mean, I don't want to make it, you know, but anytime you can bring people with different points of view together because they recognize there is a problem and then take steps to test solutions to it, I think we'd be in good shape, at least better shape than we are now. Wow. That's hard. It seems like we're going the other direction. You know, it seems like we're going in the wrong direction, you know, with some of our dialogue and our, you know, if you can even call it dialogue. I mean, geez. Yeah. But I think you, it's, it's sometimes you, it's good to pick a, pick a, a discrete issue and then, and then tr- what, how, how might we address this? And you can try different things and pilot those in small ways. And then you take a step forward. Was in another lifetime, one of toil and blood. When blackness was a virtue, the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. You've been listening to an interview with Wesleyan University President Michael Roth, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If so, please be sure to like it in all the usual podcast spots and reviews. I appreciate it. And become a member if you're not already. You just need to create a username and a password. Then you can comment on all the posts. It took a couple months for us to finally get to chat after I originally reached out to him. Because, you know, I'm pretty busy with all my professoring. Or maybe it was because his university president schedule keeps him kind of occupied. I don't know. Anyway, not long before we spoke, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions. Something I wrote about and posted towards the end of June. In the wake of that decision, Wesleyan, along with a number of other select universities, ended their legacy program that gave children of alumni a boost in the admissions process. At Wesleyan, this might have been as symbolic as it was practical, but Dr. Roth was interviewed about it over and over, from newspapers to CNN. I was worried I might miss my window to talk to him, but luckily it worked out, so I thank him for the time. And I also thank Heather Brooke for greasing the wheels for us. Dr. Roth told me he was a Bob Dylan fan. As am I, so I started the episode with Visions of Johanna and Shelter from the Storm is playing behind me. Let me remind you that Our Social Landscape is a listener-supported blog and podcast, so consider making a one-time donation or recurring monthly donation by clicking on the yellow Donate button on the homepage. Send any questions or comments to me otherwise at jr at oursociallandscape.com, and I appreciate you listening. She walked up to me so gracefully and took my crown of thorns. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. Now there's a wall between us, something that's been lost. I took too much for granted, I got my signals crossed. Just between till it all began on a non-eventful morn. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. 
Well, the deputy walks on hard nails and the preacher rides a mount. But nothing really matters much, it's doom alone that counts.